Yeah, sure. Is that, is that is that one of the Mutos or is that Godzilla? That was my half-assed attempt at Godzilla. Rawr. All right, just hold on one second. I'm uh, I gotta get this cat out of my fucking room. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Robbie. Cat. his cat out of his room. <laughs> Talking to it like a dog. Okay, stop. <laughs> <laughs> What's going to happen is my cats are going to attack my laptop and my setup as soon as we get going. I'm just talking to myself. Whatever, now he's hiding, so... Uh. <laughs> okay, uh, you intro, and then we'll talk uh, can. Okay. Cue intro music! Screens.tumblr.com. What the fuck? Edgar Wright is out oh. for the Ant Man. And Drew, Go- Drew Goddard left Daredevil. So. So. Drew Goddard. Uh, remind, me, remind me who Drew Goddard is. is there, oh, is it Godard or Goddard? The guy directed Cabin in the Woods. Oh, for fuck! Jocelyn. Oh, fuck. Yeah, no. Right. Supposedly he left it. Well, you know, it's the stupid popcorn blockbuster rumor mill. Same thing with Star Wars and all that. He left to work with uh, Fox, oh, whoever has Spider-Man, to work on the Sinister Six movie. Uh, Columbia. Columbia, yeah. So he's gonna. Well, so I guess is he taking over for Mark Webb or something? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but the rumor mill has it for. Um... Uh, for Edgar Wright, that I feel like there's a there's a, a hasty script rewrite that he does not approve of, probably because he's smarter than all of them. Also, I hear that his his shooting's really loosey goosey, and he really makes his movie in the in the editing room kind of like movie. uh uh uh. So, and Marvel did not like that; they want a very structured make, uh, creation. I, I really enjoy, the only good that came out of this is just the fact that all the people who are really um, 
loyal and love Edgar Wright. Like uh, Simon Pegg had a really had a tweet saying he was proud of Edgar Wright. So obviously he's taken sides. Well, yeah. And like, Joss Hawk- Whedon posted a picture. Of, Sorry, go on. Uh, and Joss and Joss Whedon posted a picture of himself looking tra- like tragically sad, holding up a cornetto. Uh, oh, that's bar. so great. That's so great. I have to find those and retweet them immediately. By the way, follow me on Twitter at, yeah. at ClydeNut. C-L-Y-D-E-N-U-T. Anyways, well, <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, uh, it's a big deal to walk away from a project like that. I mean, it's like Conan walking away from The Tonight Show. It, it's a big deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, it makes me sad because it was the only superhero. I mean, I'll probably see Guardians of the Galaxy if it gets good reviews. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. But I'm, it's the I'm, only other superhero movie I'm excited for. Yeah, I mean, it's still interesting to see Paul Rudd. Uh, hopefully Paul Rudd stays in Ant-Man because that, that's just a really interesting casting choice. Um, but, like, yeah. yeah, now I'm kind of uh, – I mean, there's still, there's a chance that a, another really good director could be cat, could be in the belt in the ball for this. But uh, from what I understand, I agree. People are already trying to get the guys from Lego Movie. The guys from what? People are already trying to get the guys from Lego Movie. The guys from the Lego Movie? Oh, Lord, oh. That that could be interesting, but nah, I I don't, I don't really know. Um, it wouldn't be as exciting. Okay, and the one that you actually wanted to talk the thing that you actually wanted to talk about was uh, the can winners this year. Yep. Because <clears throat> uh, I guess they were like just announced like an hour ago. Yeah, so. this morning. Like I don't know when this podcast will go up, but it's Saturday, May twenty fourth for us. And about uh, noon thirty for you, about two thirty for me. Um, and yeah, they were. I haven't seen any of the movies, obviously, but there were some nice surprises, and there were some nice, um, some nice winners who I guess uh, from movies that people previously thought should have won, like the Palm Door winner, uh, Nuri Bilge Chelan for his movie Winner's Sleep. Last time he was up for one was in the great 2011 year where he lost to The Tree of Life. When a lot of people were surprised, The Tree of Life won because it was. Yeah. Notoriously booed and cheered at the same time. That year was was great. Like, th- for my tastes, that year was such a great year for Cannes because Kirsten Dunst won Best Actress. Um, Jean Dujardin, whatever. For the artist, I don't really care about Jean Dujardin, but he's he's okay in it. I guess. He was good. But um, he was fine. Uh, uh, considered third place, the award is Best Director. It's the third place award that went to Nicholas Winding Refn for Drive. Second place was a tie between the Dardens for Kid with the Bike yeah. and, and Chelan for Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. And then The Palm Door is one of my favorite movies of the last 30 years, even. Is the of <laughs> the Life. Tree of Life. Pretty so, much. Pretty so much just, that, that, that's the equivalent of saying of all time, pretty much. No, yeah. For, for me, it, it would be. Um, absolutely. So for my taste, that was such a great year, and hopefully this year lives up to it. The winners include uh, Timothy Spall for, Mr., for the new Mike Lee movie, Mr. Turner. Okay. Really pumped this um, Julianne Moore won Best Actress. In kind of an upset for me. Well, I mean, I haven't even heard. Of, I haven't even heard about this movie, but um, I was uh, I was rooting for. Um, well, obviously, I haven't seen the movie yet, but I was rooting yeah. for the new uh, the the new film by Jean Luc and Pierre Dardenne, entitled Two Days and mm-hmm. One Night. Um, really, two of my favorite directors working today. Um, I, I don't think I've really talked about that much on the podcast yet, just because it hasn't been relevant. But um, yeah, they have a new movie coming out, and <clears throat> they're um, 
This is the first time they haven't won anything at a at a Cannes award show since their very very first film or their or their first notable film, uh, La Promesse. Ever since then, they've won something at the Cannes award. Like Rosetta won the Palme d'Or, uh, The Sun won uh, Best Actor, the The Child won Palme d'Or again, um, and then it goes on. Like they've won something literally at every Cannes award. Um, Second place tie for uh, Kid with the Bike. Kid with the Bike. Uh, Lord of Silence won something. I, I can't remember what. Um, and my one best actress. And my, well, uh, Rosetta also won best actress. But um, so yeah, that was kind of was kind of upsetting for me. But you know, nowadays because of the Coen Brothers and other people who've won some like kind of swept the palm. You can only if you win the Palm Door, you're not allowed to win anything else. Yeah, so. I guess so. So, so it's kind of a new rule that they have set in place. Well, Chris, means, well, well, Christian Munju won um, the Best Screenplay Award um, for his film after four, four weeks, three, four months, three weeks, and two days, which won the Palme d'Or. So that's yeah. it's not there. There, there are some uh, some exceptions. Exceptions, yeah. It also depends on what the jury wants to do, because last year, Steven Spielberg, Ang Lee, Nicole Kidman, and that whole jury um, decided that they gave the Palme d'Or to three people. When in Blue is the Warmest Color won, they gave it to the director and the two lead actresses. Yeah. Um, so, like, you know, uh, this year it was Jane Campion was the president, but a, a stacked jury with um, Gail Garcia Bernal, um, the Sophia lead Coppola. Act- Sophia Coppola, the lead actress from Secret Sunshine, Willem Dafoe. The, uh, the, um, the lead actress from I I think the lead actress from A Separation. Yes, and she potentially faces public flogging when she returns home because the actual Cannes president, like the lead of the entire Cannes Film Festival, kissed her on the cheek, and uh, conservatives in Iran are calling for public beating. Which, oh, oh, and Willem Dafoe, he was on it too. Oh yeah, yep, and uh, a Nicholas Winding Refn, who I guess is eight thousand feet tall. <laughs> When he stands, uh, stands like everyone else, he's just so weird. And uh, Zhe Zhenke, who directed um, uh, several Chinese films, including A Touch oh, okay. of Sin last year. I, I've, yes, that's on my Netflix queue. And I, I know you were mixed yeah. on it. I'm excited. To, I have to watch it again. I have to watch it again. Yeah, yeah uh, I need to see it for a first time. But yeah, it's a, it's a great uh, stacked um, jury, and they decided to give Timothy Spall Best uh, Actor for Mike Lee's new movie, Mr. Turner. Julianne Moore shocked by winning for Cronenberg's new movie, Maps to the Stars, for playing, I guess. Uh, oh, that's the new Cronenberg movie. <laughs> yes, Ma- uh, Maps to the Stars, which um, I guess is sort of the satire on Hollywood. And some people have compared her performance to the way Lindsay Lohan acts in real life. I'm excited to see that. Um, <laughs> the the, the, the pre do jury, the jury prize, fourth place with a tie between Xavier Dolan, 25-year-old director of Lawrence Anyways last year, movie I enjoyed for his new movie Mommy, and Jean-Luc Godard, who for maybe for, his first ever competition win at the Cannes Film Festival for his flip phone filmed 3D avant-garde weird movie, Goodbye to Language. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I haven't seen any of his recent movies, but I've, I've heard a lot of horrible things about yeah. film socialism. Uh, yeah. You know, Mark Kermode's review is hilarious. Um, uh, just uh, just a bunch of people basically mocking it. So I'm yeah. I don't know if I, I'll see this one, but I'm nonetheless interested in it. 
still divisive. Every movie at the Cannes Film Festival this year was divisive. Not one was universally adored. Even the the Palm Door winner, some people called boring. But um, but Goodbye to Language is divisive, but nowhere near as divisive as that film. Um, the what else? The um, best screenplay went to uh, a Russian film called Leviathan, which sounds fascinating. Best director. Um, Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher. I that's really intriguing to me. <laughs> Uh, because I, I like Moneyball more than you. I believe we both like Capote, but he's yeah, not the yeah. type. He's kind of a an anonymous director in his first two films. He does a good job of telling uh, very American stories, which I guess this is a continuation, however more bleak than his previous two movies. But yeah. he's still like maybe that's his style is to be sort of anonymous in his filmmaking, and he wins Best Director, which is technically third place, but still an award for direction. Um, like, you know, Nicholas Wayne Refn or wins that award or David Lynch wins that for Mulholland Drive. It's usually for divisive, weird movies. And this year it went to Ben and Miller. I'm really excited to see uh, the, this yeah, new yeah, Annapurna really movie. Um, oh, yeah. Annapurna. Uh, is, I think it's their only movie this year. No, uh, Yeah, because they're not releasing the new Paul Thomas Anderson. That's just Warner Brothers. Um. Grand Prix, which I guess a very whimsical movie by Italian filmmaker Alice Rohrwacher. They're not a pronounce it called The Wonders, which has a wonderful painted poster with bees coming out of a woman's mouth. It's very fascinating to look at. If you Google The Wonders, oh, yeah. um, uh, can. Well, I'm, I'm, on Wikipedia, I'm on Wikipedia right now, and it has that. Oh, it's a great image. Um, I, I hear it's whimsical, kind of divisive. And then the Palm Door winner is Nuri Bilga uh, Chalon's Winter Sleep, which I guess is Shakespearean, Chekhovian. Very, you know, deep stuff, which some people think is a bit pretentious, but I am really excited for it because Once Upon a Time in Anatolia is a great movie. I haven't, I haven't seen watch. it, but now I, now I want to. I recommend everyone go watch that movie. It's a great Turkish, uh, from great Turkish filmmaker, Nure Bilga. I want to see all these movies, really. I don't think I've seen any Turkish film besides um, one clip from a random Turkish action movie that's supposed that's probably the best film death scene ever. Oh, I have seen that, yeah. You have seen that where the dudes just get shot repeatedly and it just goes Aah! Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I hope no, every it. Turkish film is like that. Even the non action ones. Um, no, this movie is much more sedate, uh, once upon a time in Anatolia. Um, I'm excited for every single one of the movies that won an award, because well, I recommend Lawrence Anyways to people, Xavier Dolan's first movie, um, about a man who comes out as trans, uh, gendered, um, and his life gets turned upside down, but really the star of that is his, his wife plays a really difficult role. It's really over-stylized in some people's view, but really fascinating, and I'm, uh, Chaylon's new movie because I'm, you know, everyone should go out and watch Once Upon a Time in Anatolia. Bennett Miller, I recommend is, it's, you know, Moneyball is easy to recommend to people because it's not too art house, but I'm really intrigued by Foxcatcher. It might be my most intriguing pick of this festival because it just, it doesn't seem like a movie that would win at Cannes. I bet you're pretty mad that The Immigrant didn't win. Or, or well, was yeah, it Cannes? Was it Cannes this that year? That was last year. That, oh, that, that was, was last year. year. And it got, it got, demolished it got really it, europeans hate it and i guess the brit uk notoriously hates james gray okay, it's well, really we're gonna get, to, positive. It. We're gonna get yeah. to it anyway all right yeah 
<clears throat> Speaking of which, let's actually get to the movies. First of which came out last week. Last week for us. Hopefully, hopefully this podcast gets to the listeners faster than last time because you know we have to edit it and then wait for wait for a couple other people to work on it too. Um, <clears throat> uh, because our last podcast, there was a super huge delay between when we recorded it and when it was delivered to you. I think Godzilla was out by the time that we that it came out, and our big movie was Under the Skin. So that. And Noah, so that shows you how long it was since <clears throat> since we recorded it. It was like two, three weeks gap, and hopefully this doesn't happen. Um, but Godzilla came out last week. Um, the second attempt, and you know, I think unanimously more successful American attempt at telling the Godzilla story. Well, I I I guess fourth time because Godzilla in 1985 takes some from Return of Godzilla and then <clears throat> obviously the Godzilla King of All Monsters which is basically the original Gojira with and with some American actor in it um just uh, kind of put in it but you know uh, obviously those those have Japanese counterparts uh this is the second original completely original American telling of Godzilla and I think uh is unanimously more successful even though it's still kind of problematic um so basically do you really need do you really even know need to know the story godzilla comes um well you you do kind of um two monsters were awake were kind of awakened or they were hibernating but they were awakened um one of them is a female that's very pregnant the other one's a male that has wings and by the way, I don't think that's a spoiler that there are other monsters. It's been out a week. You've probably heard about it. You've probably seen the movie already. So I don't think it's a big deal to tell you that there are other monsters in this movie, too. There are no angel rock monsters, though. The, yeah, the, yeah, that's a big de- the, that's a big deviation from the source material. Um, <laughs> um, the, the, and these monsters feed off of radiation, so you literally cannot... You can't kill them via atomic bombs or... Uh, grenades or anything because they just feed off of it. So um, the only one that that can is Godzilla, who is going to be awakened from his own sleep and come and destroy first Hawaii and then uh, what's next? The, the, and then San Francisco. But uh, it takes a little while to get there, unfortunately. Um, I think the biggest problem with this movie is that. Aaron Taylor Johnson makes Charlie Hunnam in Pacific Rim look like a method actor in comparison. Wow, I actually I agree with you that he's boring as all get out in this movie, but I still prefer him to Charlie Hunnam. Really? Who, right, who, right. who, who for for me almost ruins uh, a decent Pacific Rim movie. See, this movie, I mean, I, I mean him. I, I've heard Greg say that he ruins this movie for some of those people. I mean, he's he, he's outclassed by the actor playing his father, <laughs> um, Brian Cranston, um, and every other actor in this movie, from Ken Wantabi to uh, to underused great actresses like like, um, like Sally Hawkins, who has maybe two lines. Like that uh, that role could have been played by anyone. They could have got an actual assistant on the set to just hey hey um, go do this role. Or Juliet frickin' Binoche, or even Elizabeth Olsen, who I think has talent. 
Yeah, uh, uh, Elizabeth Olsen is great, but she the thing is, she hasn't been legitimately great since Mar- Martha Marcy May Marlene, which was the first movie that the first movie she she did, I think. Um, it's also the only one I've seen of hers, like, other than Godzilla. So. Yeah, uh, but she's been terrific, and I think she was in a couple other things. She was in the Old Boy remake, yeah, whatever. Um, uh, she was in I don't even remember what she was in, but yeah, she. I'm 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 hoping that she continues being a great actress, and you know, I mean I mean great, you know, if you want to take take big studio stuff and get a paycheck, that's perfectly fine. I got no problem with that, but you know, I want to see you take actual roles too. Um, but Julia Binoche has one great scene with Brian Cranston, who's also in this film, though not nearly enough as. Like, like it's a really, it, it's kind of a misleading trailer because it makes you believe that he's the lead, um, but he's not. I hate to break it to you. If there is a lead, it's Aaron Taylor Johnson who is not good. Um, Actually, in my, uh, I want to get talking to a certain aspect of this film, but I would argue that the lead is Godzilla. <laughs> well, the lead should be Godzilla, um, except, well, like seeing the Muto stuff is really fun when they start coming. But you don't see Godzilla until about an hour in, which is fine, in Hawaii. But the thing is, when you see him, you, ideally there's a fight. Except you don't see the fight, you see Elizabeth Olsen watching the fight on TV. Like, they keep doing stuff like that, where they only show a little bit of a fight, then they cut back to the human characters as as if they mean something. You know, as if watching them watch the fight is more fun than the actual fight. You know, like, uh, it's like... That would have been such a great moment for their them for there to be like a something to tide you over until the big big ass fight at the end, because he, like here's the thing, this movie gets Godzilla like Gareth Edwards, who I swear to God I'm gonna confuse with Gareth Evans for the rest of my life, who is the director of the Raid films. Gareth Edwards, you can tell that he just gets these movies that he grew up with them. The, God, the classic Godzilla movies, like, you can just tell that he grew up with them, that he really understands what makes them great, other than, you know, um, he, which Roland Emmerich absolutely failed at understanding. Um, he gets what makes Godzilla great, he gets what makes Godzilla an actual character. Believe it or not, like, uh, you know, the whole, the whole thing with Godzilla is that he is a, a literally, a practically literally a god. Um, and like this movie understands that and the thing is I I feel like this movie has a conflict of what it thinks it is like it wants to be this uh, this monster movie but then it also wants to have you care about the characters which if if it wanted me to care about the characters like g- give them something like I, I, I feel like the only dramatic heft that this movie puts in it's in its many scenes is that children become become involved. He finds that a child accidentally goes onto a train in Hawaii, and he has to care about this child. Or you see, you see a little girl uh, approaching a tsunami or something. Like that's the only dramatic heft that this movie knows how to pull, because none of the characters are very interesting. Like Elizabeth Olsen is, Olsen is giving nothing to do, and um, you know just. Uh, None of these characters are interesting, and, like, if you don't know how to make interesting characters, then, okay, give us the monster stuff. Do what Pacific Rim did and just get, uh, give us wall-to-wall monster stuff, you know? 
it's kind of surprising that I say that because when I saw this movie on the Thursday night before it came out, I saw it with my brother and I was kind of on a sugar high with this movie. You know, I was just super excited that it existed um, and that it got the monster stuff so right that I was like willing to not not even really pay attention to the flaws of it. I actually saw it again that same weekend with my dad because my dad really wanted to. And that time I was significantly more annoyed with the parts that this movie doesn't get right, mm-hmm. which explains why my score of it kind of went down from when I saw it. Um, because it's a little bit frustrating because, like I said, this movie gets Godzilla, but it does not get the humans. So I just show more Godzilla. Like I, you know, I feel like this movie is almost afraid to show Godzilla at, at certain points and show monster fights. Which I don't really understand. Um, but that's basically my piece on Godzilla. Like, like I hope that they make more, and I, and they will make more. I mean, there's a sequel planned, and this movie made made a shitload of money. It's the first real money maker of the summer. I mean, Spider Man Two maybe, but who cares? Um, uh, but like, if if you're gonna make more of these, then I hope then do what Planet of the Apes is doing and have a completely new cast in the next movie. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like, and then actually have the balls to just be wall-to-wall monster action because uh, this movie could have been significantly better if otherwise. And like, every, like every in the first half of every year, I need some movie to give me unabashed nerd pleasure. I thought this movie would be that, and it was. But it turned out that it was more the Raid 2 that gave me unabashed nerd pre- nerd pleasure. Because, you know, that movie has more of the goods, basically, you know? Yeah, um, it's weird. I've kind of had the opposite uh, feeling with Godzilla, where it's kind of grown on me a bit since really? I first saw it. Um, I, you know, I, I upped my letterbox score by half a star. Um, and I put it up higher on my list by a couple movies. And I think... Oh, really? It's... Yeah, um, it, I think it's because I've I've read some really great which is the which, which is the opposite of what I just what, of what I did. Oh, I know. Like um, David Ehrlich, who is um, who uh, talks on Fighting with the War Room podcast, which is a good movie podcast. It used to be called Operation Kino. Um, sort of has this. Uh, it's not really fair to him, but he, he's labeled with this vendetta against tentpole blockbusters because he, he's more of an art house style uh, film critic. But he gave, he, he loves this movie more than I, I still am. He gave like nine, uh, nine out of ten, four and a half stars on his letterbox. And his reasoning is that the humans in this movie don't matter, and he actually likes that because it because the in his opinion and and I. Yeah, of course. The I agree. Movies, of course, the humans don't matter, but why do they keep cutting back to them? Because it's sort of the buildup. Because as you go, um, what I what I've always liked since I first saw this movie, and this has carried me over just to liking it, because I had issues with the with the conveniences and the plot. I've had uh, like you know why why is it why are they both in Hawaii now? Why are they going to San Francisco now? Like it's just also convenient. And that really bugged me when I saw it, but and it's still flaw. But I, I liked cutting away from the fight in Hawaii because, it to me, that was enough to get me excited for what was to come because I knew that the giant monster Godzilla was fighting was not going to die. And I knew there was going to be a payoff of a great big fight. So whenever we get to that scene where 
towards the end of this movie in San Francisco when Godzilla's fighting both Muto monsters and um, and the U.S. military is going on this plan. You know, they there's this beautiful scene of them falling through the clouds, and in the background you see the monsters yeah. fighting. Oh my god! And th- which gives you the proper scale, and then you have them trying to accomplish this mission. And I'm not going. I, I want to break into a spoiler segment. Um, you know what? It, at, most people have seen this. I think it's okay if you don't want to see. You don't want to hear spoilers. Just move ahead about five minutes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um. Yes. Five minutes for spoilers. So w- their plan is to set off this bomb, or, or to get the bomb off the pl- uh, off of San Francisco. Uh, and of course, our, coincidentally, our lead character is a bomb specialist. Um, yeah. So yeah. they have to get rid of this bomb so they don't, you know, have nuclear holocaust in San Francisco while these giant monsters are fighting. That and was interesting. And and they and they're doing this while the monsters are constantly in the background providing scale. And the moral of the story is is what they were doing. All this human drama that I agree that the film's not executing to the perfect. Um, degree, even at a competent degree, doesn't matter because in the end, Aaron Johnson Taylor's character fails. He doesn't even successfully disarm the bomb. They do get it off out of San Francisco, but his whole quest as the hero is completely pointless, um, which kind of shows that Godzilla is is nature. Godzilla is yeah. the world taking back from... Uh, man showing that mother nature and the world itself is more powerful than we are. It's just a force. And in the end, our human dramas don't matter in the face of such force. It's kind of a, and I was kind of fascinated by that. Yeah. That's an interesting take on it. And that's why I, you know, that's why I say, keep saying that Gareth Edwards understands Godzilla. Yeah. I think one of the great things that this movie does is provide that scale. I mean, mm-hmm. you, the monsters never seemed bigger than they do now. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things that this movie totally gets right, and that that does help help with a lot of yeah. things. But I can't help but think if Brian Cranston was the actual lead in this movie, like you think that he's going to be, then maybe I would care a little bit mm-hmm. about the movie things. Because since we're in a spoiler section, I, I don't think it's a big deal. Like he's gone for the majority of the movie. The fact that he dies is, is was the made me a little upset because he is the yeah. best part. Of it. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't say the best part. I'd say the best part. Is okay, no, he's the best human. He's the best, part. best, yeah. the best human part. Um, yeah, exactly. And his scene with Juliet Binoche is just heartbreaking. Um, or Ken Watanabe saying uh, Godzilla. Uh, uh, also- yeah, Ken, Ken Watanabe. <laughs> um, yeah. He provides some glue, but not really enough to make me care about the humans. Oh, yeah. Um, but if Brian Cranston was the actual lead and doing all the stuff that Aaron Taylor Johnson was doing, he would have provided enough heft for me to tide me over. And the the movie still tides me over somewhat, just with the Muto stuff and the suspense of what's going to happen. But that, oh, that was only really for the first time I saw it. The second time I saw it, I was significantly more bored and kind of <laughs> just hoping uh, the monster would come. So I don't know. Like, I... I was into it. I'm more positive than negative, but you know, I'm hoping that the next time they do Godzilla, they have either people I care about or just more monsters. The um, maybe if I see it a second time, I would agree. Because the second time I saw Pacific Rim, I was much lower on it yes, than it was yes, the I first hear. time. Um, 
but it's still a fun movie. I, and I wonder if this movie would, I would have the same view. I can't get over how beautiful some of the shots are whenever yeah. Aaron J- Johnson Tyler is on the bridge and Taylor the Muto Johnson. is going, oh, the, Taylor Johnson, thank you, is going under him. Like, it's just such like a good thrill scene um, of how big that monster is compared to the little people on the bridge. <laughs> um, and um, also, of course, them falling, uh, parachuting onto the streets of San Francisco is kind of mind-blowingly. Yeah, it's, of it's my favorite shot of the whole movie. But um, I, I'm not going to lie. When they cut to the TV version of uh, the Godzilla find the Muto in Hawaii, I laughed. Like, in the theater, I went, ha! <laughs> like, kind of like, that was a great cut. I, for some reason... It's a funny I, moment, but, like, if they cut back to the fight instead of just yeah. cutting to the morning after, then that would have been something like... like at that point, you kind of needed something. Like you got Godzilla, yeah. you got his, you got his roar. That's something, but you need uh, just. Uh, I don't know. That, that that just felt like a wasted opportunity to me. I can see that, but in the end, I I still really appreciated not only as a laugh, but mostly as like it, it is enough of a tease for me. At least the first time watching the movie, like it totally gets me by. Like oh, I can't wait till we actually get to see some fighting. It worked for me. Okay, well. Well, yeah, we, uh, yeah, so that, so that's Godzilla. I think we're good with that. Um, what's next? I can't remember what's next. Lock. Lock, or... um, Lock or the Devil. Do you, you want to do the, uh, how, how about the Devil since we, I've seen that a little more recently. All right. Uh, so, ladies, uh, go on. Um, the, the Devil is Richard Ayoade's second feature-length film, I believe, after this, after Submarine, which was his debut uh, film, or at least his breakout film. He has made here a movie that many have called uh, Gilliam-esque uh, in, in its relationship to the visual style of Brazil. Many have called it Kafka-esque, in its, which is um, its relationship to the day-to-day minutia of a terribly boring job. But in the end, it's based off a of Fyodor Dostoevsky uh, novella called The Double. And this yeah. is the second of two doppelganger movies this year, starring Jesse Eisenberg as um, as he tries to impress a pretty uh, lady, uh, played by... Uh, Mia Wasikowska. Yes, and finds that his shyness and his inability to communicate his talents won't get him very far. So it's very, Jesse Eisenberg playing very much the pathetic loser Jesse Eisenberg. Turns except, out there's a... I'm sorry, well, what? except the entire universe is consider, is continuously busting his balls at every oh, second. Oh, absolutely. Like, like, this movie, the Gilliam comparisons make sense because it's stylized to the max. You're not supposed to look at this movie and go, well, that would never happen in real life. That's not the point of the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're saying that, then you're not even paying attention. Exactly. Like, the movie sets up its own um, it doesn't world. Even, it doesn't even exist on planet Earth, for all we know. No, yeah, exactly. It, it exists in, in, a, in a no time that's simultaneously the past and the future, anachronistic, much like Terry Gilliam's Brazil. But this movie does separate itself, not in its visual style as well. It doesn't go full balls to the wall like Brazil. It still feels a little bit more on the real world than that movie did, but also... The color scheme in this movie just feels completely different. Yeah. This, this, movie, this movie is less um, is less gross, but more sinister. 
like um, if that makes any sense. Like Brazil gives sort of a gross hyper candy feel. This movie makes you feel creeped out a bit in its sort of stylization. Yeah. There's an unease to it. There's an unease to both movies, but the unease here is more for your life um, because <laughs> yeah. um, because Jesse Eisenberg's character um, Simon James. <laughs> I think it's Simon James, um, because one's James Simon. Yeah. Um, the doppelganger's name is James Simon. All right, yeah, so uh, Simon James here finds that he has a double in the world, um, as someone who looks just like him but is completely opposite in his personality. Um, outgoing, cocky, arrogant, not as smart as he is, but more resourceful. And, of course... As he sort of befriends his own double, he quickly finds that his double is much more sinister than he appears on the surface and starts sort of replacing him yeah. as the film goes on. And I don't know, from production design, cinematography, acting, this is Eisenberg's best work since The Social Network. Oh, without and, a doubt, without a doubt. And a brilliantly creepy... It, revitalizing score the, of strings and different synths and net sounds. It just excited me throughout the entire film and kept me glued yeah. to my TV screen. So I watched this on VOD. Um, I, I am a huge fan of the double. Yeah. I'm, I'm a fan of the double. I'm not, I'm not going to go as far as saying I'm a huge fan, but I'm definitely a fan. Definitely one of the most unique experiences I've had with the movie this year. I think one of my beefs with it is that you know I you know I got such a thrill with um, uh, just uh, the the style of this movie and just the way it was presented because it was just so different. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, I mean it was as if um, Eraserhead had the the locations and the the art direction to it, but it was somehow directed by Terry Gilliam instead. Like it, it was really that kind of movie for me, and uh, especially the music to- mu- Some of the music choices are super David Lynch. Oh yeah. Um, I don't. Th- there comes a point where I kind of know what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that it was almost like I was, I was just kind of waiting for that thing to happen, although it didn't happen in exactly the way I anticipated. Um, <clears throat> but I was kind. Of, uh, sorry, I hit my mic. Um, I was also kind of, I feel like there's almost this subtext to the film that I found really fascinating, but I don't think, I don't think it gets explored enough. Um, mm-hmm. the, the company that he works for is developing this, uh, the government agency is working for is developing this technology that, um, well, that everyone's the same, but everyone's kind of sp- uh, special and immortal, and uh, they're all being you know, put, into, put into the system of some kind. Um, I'm a little bit foggy on that. But it really, for me, this might be a totally personal thing that the movie did not even did not even intend. I'm just reading into it. But it reminded me a lot of social media. Um, and it reminded me of the kind of immortality that people are looking for just by putting all of their information online where it can stay there forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's a really interesting angle, but I'm not for one. Once again, the movie may, may not have even been intending that, and I'm yeah. just looking into it. But I still find that to be a super fascinating angle that I wish was seen a little bit more, um, mm-hmm. or at least a little bit more explicitly. 
Um, but you, but you know, um, this is a movie that probably warrants a second viewing. Uh, oh, I agree. And I'd like to give that its second viewing at some point. Um, because this is really interesting, and and also just the way that Jesse Eisenberg knows how to play two people. I mean, it was a lot like Nicholas watching Nicholas Cage in an adaptation play Charlie Kaufman and the fictional Donnie Kaufman. Mm-hmm. Um, or well, his Charlie Kaufman is also fictionalized, but um, oh yeah. Uh, I mean, the two characters are often in the same scene at the same time, yet you never mistake who is who. Um, except, it, you know, it, it would have been even harder harder to do so in the double because most of the time the two Jesse Eisenbergs are wearing the same outfit. Yeah. So it would have, would have been even harder to – but just but, but just the way the two characters just carry themselves. Absolutely. Um, and just really just – just intricate, subtle touches that just – like that – Eisenberg just builds into the different characters. I mean, it's just a super interesting acting job done by him. Um, I was on the teetering point of loving this movie. I almost do. Maybe in... Maybe w- maybe with more consideration, I might. Um, but, you know, this this still gets my one of my highest recommendations of the year, no doubt. Just for the experience, um, if nothing else, you know. The... The, the, the shot compositions are really nice and their use of symmetry, which kind of, I mean, I think the reason that I, I mean, I would agree that the film goes exactly the direction you think it's go at all times. It doesn't really surprise. But what I would say is that I do love how the, how the inner demons, um, of Simon James come out as an outer demon who's sort of ruining his life and, and the sort of, how, how tied his inner demons are to his outer demons by, I'm not going to spoil the end of this movie, which yeah. um, is that, I mean, they become very literal and how closely tied the two men are, you know, just based on uh, even their souls even. Yeah. Um, but I, the way that Eisenberg presents the, his pathetic side reminds me a bit of um, Jack Lemmon and uh, Billy Wilder's great best picture winner, The Apartment. And the sort of huh. how he lets everyone at his job kind of walk all over him. But there's sort of like a, com- a dark, because Billy Wilder is really good as a dark comedian, especially in the 50s and 60s, uh, sort of a dark comedy bent where his patheticness, and I would say Eisenberg is more pathetic here than Jack Lemmon is there. Um, though Jack Lemmon, that's one of the great performances of all time. I'm not going to say this one's better. Yeah. But how he presents himself is very similar, except for the fact that he's even more pathetic. He lets everyone walk all over him um and i i love the contrast again how he wants to be confident but it's what's the sacrifice of confidence is overconfidence which is what james simon the other jesse eisenberg character has and the sort of the just (laughs) there's a line in this movie i almost cried i laughed so hard about about how james simon's giving simon james advice in a relationship and about where to place your hand on the small of a woman's back I'm not going yeah. to. I'm not going to give the joke away, but that just caught me off guard. You know, one of those laughs, and just how terrible that character is is kind of evident in his sort of nonchalance about taking advantage of people. And you know, and I think that's a really, uh, a really, 
fascinating contrast to the the Simon James character. I liked uh, another film reference. I thought the score, which I've I've already said, I've been really high on, kind of reminds me of Danny Elfman's best score in thirty years or twenty years. Oh yeah, thirty. I was gonna say. I was gonna say, as far as the visual style is, there's a, a hint, just a hint of Tim Burton. Not, I know, not I, too I, much, not too much to where it becomes campy or just over the top goth bullshit, which yeah. is what he what he is nowadays for all intents and purposes. But just a hint of Tim Burton. I totally agree with that. Um, Tim Burton, Terry, more Terry Gilliam, of course. Uh, the Billy Wilder. I don't, I don't know if it's a reference. I'm not the only person who said that either. Um, and, I mean, I left this movie with the sort of high I got from The Great Beauty and the sort of high I got from seeing Brazil in theaters. And the, yeah. just a an assault on the senses, all senses except for smell and taste, obviously. But <laughs> but how that can be invigorating in a good way, yeah. not in a – of course, all three movies, this one least of which arguably, have a sort of sense of indulgence to them. But – they're not indulgent to the fact where I think they're not trying to let the audience enjoy themselves if you're into that sort of thing. And I, and they're not too distancing. Um, of course, if you, if you, if you indulge in these sort of over, like, you know, the, the sound design, the, the production design, the acting styles, like if you indulge in all of them, you're going to ostracize some audience members and intelligent audience members. But I think that this film sort of invites you to be, get caught up in this fucked up world. Yeah. Uh, the high didn't last as long for the entirety for the entirety of the film like I would have liked, but I still I still really enjoyed it. And before we move on from it, I want to say that my favorite laugh in the movie was if you're a connoisseur of '90s indie alternative rock, there's a very <laughs> there's a very specific cameo that like the second time you see him, it's it's, it's my favorite laugh in the whole movie, in the whole movie. Yeah. probably because he mistakes which Jesse Eisenberg he's talking to. Um, oh yeah, man, like it, that just comes out, and, and you don't need to look hard to recognize him either. Like it's almost as if they just called him up and were just like, hey, uh, can he come down? Yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Um, I turn to my wife and I go, hey, it's blank, 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 and she's like, who? Who's that? Yeah, who's <laughs> that? I'm like, uh, I'm, like, uh, I'm like, don't worry about it. Get a divorce immediately. <laughs> I know. I don't know if my wife has ever listened to the band we're mentioned, we're referencing here, but she probably liked it. Um, <laughs> yeah, she did. Divorce. Divorce. <laughs> Name of the podcast. Divorce your wife. <laughs> divorce your wives. <laughs> All right. Um, moving on now, we have Luck, uh, which is – I can't remember who directed this movie. Who directed this film? Stephen Knight, the screenwriter of uh, Eastern Promises and an Academy Award screenwriter of another movie that the name is escaping me. All right. Well, uh, I, I think the script is, you know, just it, it makes sense because uh, I assume he wrote it too because it's yes. really the, the one of the high points of the film. The lock is Tom Hardy um, who is left a very – who basically abandoned – the most important event of his entire career um, for another thing that might be at, might be more important but slightly troubling as well. Don't want to give away exactly what he's leaving them for. Uh, uh, but basically the film is it's all in real time and it's an hour and 20 some odd minutes of him driving from uh, Birmingham, Birmingham, right? 
uh, to London. Mm-hmm. Is it Birmingham? I don't. I don't remember where he's coming from, but he's certainly going to London. He's going but, to. He's going to London, um, and it's Tom Hardy in a car talking to people on his Bluetooth, uh, you know, through the car stereo. And I found this film riveting for, oh, from from beginning to end. Like this is one of my favorite films of this year. Like n- no doubt. Like at least in my top five. Um. I found I found Tom. I think this for me is the the role that cements Tom Hardy as maybe top five greatest living actors, especially especially now that Philip especially now that Philip Seymour Hoffman is no longer with us, unfortunately. Like top five, maybe even top three living actors working today. I mean, just that this guy you can you can play Bronson, you can play Charles Bronson. Yep. Bane, who I, I still argue he gives a fantastic performance as Bane, you know, although some people didn't like the voice mechanism or whatever. Easy to parody, but a really good, brutal performance. Yeah, and and this, which, man, I, I he, he was just one of those, he played this great line between always being on top of what he's doing and so close to falling apart in every second. Like, he plays that line throughout the whole film, and yeah. it's so easy to overdo that, um, or just uh, uh, I, I, it, it's really easy to fuck that up. But it's just it was incredible for me, to, no, just, I, just watching him. I totally agree. Um, if what I know, awards don't matter, but A twenty four needs to get out the screener for this in August and try yes. to get that. And try to get that Damien Bashir or um, uh, Richard Jenkins Best Actor Surprise nomination from yes, Small. yes. Because this is um, this uh, some of the performances in The Immigrant and um, which we're gonna get to. Yes, and Ray Fiennes are my top four performances of the year, and I think Hardy is in that category with. Tell me if you disagree with the Joaquin Phoenixes, yes. the Michael Michael Fassbenders, and the most of the time, the Christian Bales. So that sort of that generation of actor who's under fifty, who is even under forty for most of them, if not all of them, uh, who's giving these sort of performances that no other actor could pull off. I mean, granted, I just named four actors who are great at brooding, <laughs> so maybe it obviously shows yeah. my taste. Um, and but I don't. <laughs> but um, but I think also, he was also in Warrior, which is another. He's movie. great. He's Great in war. He's great uh, in his in his small role in Tinker Taylor Soldier Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. And he's he's everyone's favorite character, even though his role's not that big in Inception. I feel like he's he's so charming, and he yeah. he, he I mean he's a side character, but he's that side character you like. I want that guy to have more screen time. I mean he, Tom Hardy's done a great job uh, with with his recent part of his career, and especially Bronson in here are. His two best performances, I think. Yeah, it's and, just amazing in, in both movies and this one. And, and, th- and they're different. Yeah, yeah, of course. And th- But the thing is, it's not only him that's great. Like, I get invested in the characters and the character arcs of people whose faces I will never see. The, p- yeah. the people he's just talking to, I get completely invested in them, and I never see them. Like, <laughs> that's amazing. And I found two of them much better than the others, and the characters I thought were a little weaker, though I didn't really mind it, were the women. 
characters. I didn't think they were quite really? as. Really? I didn't think they were as strong as Donald and his son. I think those are the. Huh. I, think, I think those are my favorite too. That's I interesting. Feel, I totally understand his wife's plight because of what he's done and why she makes the decision she makes. But I still feel like she falls into an archetype, an easy archetype. I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I don't necessarily agree. But that, okay. Know, okay. Yeah. But uh, I just think, I think there were so, and, and this is partly, she, she, something that she might have done is partly in, uh, in line with this. I think this film, you know, there could have been so, so many opportunities for fake, contrived, stupid plot stuff to happen. Totally. Um, agree. Which is kind of what happens with Joe, which we talked about last podcast, um, and uh, to an, to an extent with Mud at the very end, you know, um, diff, very different from this movie, but um, that never happens. It feels like everything, with the exception of one specific plot point that we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about, everything feels of a piece and uh, feels like what would actually happen given the circumstance and not. Just a bunch of stupid, like, th- thrown together, like, oh, we're going to throw this big twist in there just to fuck with y'all. That does not happen. Like, I was convinced at a certain point, and this isn't a spoiler because it doesn't, doesn't happen. <laughs> I was convinced at a certain point that, well, not convinced, but I was afraid at a certain point that, oh, man, the wife's going to kill herself or d- just do something, try to kill herself. And uh, then there's going to be this whole plot thing. And I think there's a, that might have been a legitimate possibility. Um, that the writers might have been considering at some point, but that does not happen. I'm very happy it doesn't. No, um, yeah, I totally agree that this movie, um, I would say all of its plot lines to varying degrees work for me. Um, the one, the some one, more than not. Oh, sorry, go on. No, uh, I mean, we're going to talk about the one that most people have cited as the biggest problem, and I would yeah. agree. Um, I do want to say before we move on to that, that this screenplay is I simultaneously love it and have some issues with it. And, and what, I, I, I mostly love it, but I, I want to hear your issues on it. Um, I love what you're talking about. I think it's masterful in the way that it sort of makes everything of one piece. You know, as you, to sort of paraphrase what you said. So like you have all these different things flying in the air. His life is crumbling before him that he's built. <laughs> uh, no pun intended. Um, He's a, yeah, he's a, <laughs> yeah. He, because he works in construction, we forgot to mention. Yeah, but that the fact that he works in construction is actually my biggest issue with the movie. Really? Not not in of itself because I like the symbol, but whenever he starts, you know, giving a soliloquy essentially about the importance of building buildings, I don't I I don't fully resist I it. Loved I'm like, I love that. I love that. Well, I, I, yeah, I don't go, man, this is so screenplay 101-y. I, but what I, I don't go that far. But what I do go is, like, I feel like I already understood that. So I didn't necessarily so. need it where it was already, like, I like that he's an architect. I think that's a really good symbol. But when he specifically, like, brings his job and vocalizes it to the audience and to – I don't remember if he's talking to um, – Well, he's talking to his coworker and trying to get him – Okay, yeah, Donald, get, yeah. And, and who I was convinced was Chris O'Dowd the entire time, but it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I, I didn't like that. The, 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 the symbol I did like uh, more well, – well, okay, I didn't dislike it, but the symbol I liked more, which I think we're about to get to, and is the one of the bastard. 
the one of which comes in several different forms. His boss on his caller ID is named the Bastard, Bastard. <laughs> which is hilarious. But the fact that his this isn't a spoiler; it's discovered soon. Yeah, his, yeah, yeah. Let's let's go for it. His role as someone who was born out of wedlock and had a father who was not as part of his life as he should have been totally comes into his life and it defines him in a way that I did like more see, than the building of the buildings. See, okay, I want to I want to ask you what part of the architect did you uh, like what part did you think was symbolic? Oh, the fact that he his job is to make the base of a building that will touch the sky and is supposed and his job is to sort of put everything back together like that is a symbol uh, uh, sorry his job is to keep everything together which he's doing throughout the movie oh, that, oh I, see, I see i see what you're saying i didn't look at that in a symbolic way as much as i did just a kind of i don't know i found this i found this to be a portrait of a dude that's obsessed with, yes yeah, absolutely. obsessed with his with his job and I, I didn't look at his job in uh a symbolic way. I, I can I can see what you're getting at, but I didn't see it that way. Um, with the father stuff, I I like what I I like what they're going for, but those it only happens two maybe three times, so it's not a bit, it's, it's not a problem. It's not a huge problem. I just I wish the film had a different way of going about explaining that, because how it is explained is basically. Him looking in the rearview mirror to, uh, I guess, his invisible dad, or his projection, or sort of mind projection of his dad in the back, and just talking to him, and just he, he, I, I like his performance because you just get the seething anger, even though he doesn't raise his voice that much. You just get the seething, just bitterness and just vitriol um, that is, is also not overdone in in any way. I think. Um, no. But at the, but at the same time, it's kind of a like I, 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 I do think that that was the least subtle part of the film. And I just like I said, I wish there was another way. I think there could have been another way to go about doing that. Uh, but it, it didn't it didn't subtract from the film as much for me. As we're talking about this movie, I think I'm going to move my rating up because I really did Good. really did love it. The the, the thing that sort of saves any of the lack of subtlety with either his job or his relationship to his uh, his, his his distant father, um, both of those two things I think are everyone's sights as the only two issues really anyone has in the movie is the fact that that Stephen Knight sells his screenplay with his own direction and the fact that Hardy sells it with a one hell of a performance that yeah. never is forced or unsubtle. <laughs> like it's totally nuanced throughout the entire film. Like yeah. he does a, I mean he just is so great. There's, the, a, there's a couple uh, of there's a couple of times where he screams fuck just a, <laughs> just after a call which um which felt like someone someone something that someone would actually do. So that's yeah. not something I take away from. Also the Welsh accent which was his choice was I thought was brilliant because well first of all you don't hear that very often. But yeah. just it, just the way the way he speaks and just the meth the rhythm of the way he speaks it does kind of go with the whole like keeping things, things together motif and mm-hmm. you know um it's soothing and intense at the same time oh absolutely the um and he plays 
having a cold better than most actors I can imagine. He had a cold? Well, like, the whole time he's blowing his nose and he's like drinking some cough syrup and like they never say. I don't he remember. Had a cold. I don't remember that either. But yeah, yeah he, he, they, they never say I'm sick. Except for at one point, his boss says, why didn't you just call in sick? Which I actually like laughed inside because the whole time his eyes, he's, he's, he's crying but he's, uh, throughout some of the movie. But he also just has these red eyes and he's constantly blowing his nose. And he, he drinks a huge gulp of cop syrup, <laughs> which, to, which to me was why uh, one of the plot. Um, I didn't know that that was cough syrup. I'm probably yeah. Dumb, but yeah. No, you're not dumb. It, <laughs> Drinking it, some purple drink. Yeah, no, he's sipping on that sip, sir, and maybe that's <laughs> why he, maybe that's why he's having such a hard time. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> While he's driving, that's probably not not yeah. uh, not very very safe. But yeah, <laughs> but I do want to mention one more thing with this movie, at least, and that's the direction. I think Stephen Knight. Yes. Um, this is a movie that typically you look at it and you go, why is that a movie? Just make it a play or a short story because it's going to be boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it's, guy it's, in a car. It seems like something that is, under any other hands, would just be destined to be a short film and then have nothing to do with anything else. With, and I think it's great that a, a natural writer, and it's only his second uh, directed movie, he did some action movie with Jason Statham last year called Redemption. So, so it's, it's his second ever directorial uh, piece. And he keeps the film in motion with the, the use of reflections. I'm a huge fan yes. of the use of car reflections, which is why I'm such a huge... Abbas Kiarostami um, fan. Yes. Like, every Kiarostami movie has a driving scene, and every driving scene in a Kiarostami movie is the best scene in the movie. Yeah, I, he's, he's, yeah I, I recently saw like Someone in Love, and I understand that that is a recurring motif in throughout a lot of his movies. Yes, and he uses it differently in every movie, which I really uh, appreciate. But in this, is I wouldn't say it's as subtle as Kiarostami's use, but it does a great job of having this forward propulsion with the reflections of the lights in his windshield yes. and his in his rearview mirror. They and find his so side many, mirrors. yeah. They find so many ways to find to make a dude sitting in his car be a really thrilling um, look, cinematography wise, and just a really cinematic experience. And um, not corny use of dissolves of putting dissolving his face, superimposing it over like the street, and it's not corny. Yeah. It's like it's nice and subtle. Like it, it, it's really great directing, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I really did love this movie. Yeah, it's really good. All right. Um. Uh. Ne well. Um. Next is just a little bit of a follow up. I don't want it to go. I don't want this to go super long. But you talked yeah. about this film last podcast, and I just saw it. Uh, not yesterday, but uh, I'm sorry. Uh, two days ago. Mistaken for Strangers, the documentary on Matt Berenger, the singer for the, for the National, and um, that, that was directed by Tom Berenger and documents – at first documents his time on the road with the band as sort of a roadie, um, <laughs> which um, – well, if you want more of, a, more of a synopsis of the film, you can look at the, our last podcast, but yeah. um, basically Tom Berenger is me. Um, <laughs> a, a, slightly, a more nerdy version of me because I'm also I'm also a metalhead and I also I also love super cheesy uh, B horror movies. But you do not frequent metal clubs. Um, it depends on what metal clubs. Yeah. Um, I I don't listen to Rob Halford's Christmas album. 
<laughs> um, uh, speaking of which, um, <laughs> one, one of my favorite shots in the whole film was uh, he just turns on the camera and says, hey, guys, uh, just hanging out. Listen to Rob Halford's Christmas album, and he turns on Rob Halford singing "Oh Holy Night," yeah, which is also great. which is also the song that plays over the credits. Yep, <laughs> it's so it's so so ridiculous, but it points to what I love about this movie, and it's that it's this, you know, it's so not a professionally made like studio documentary, like you get this amateur sense from it that I found re- I found. I found really charming, and there's so many moments where people say, you know, you shouldn't be filming this. Yeah. Do you really want to be filming this? And then then there are times where they just just straight up tell him him to turn the fucking camera off, and he doesn't. He puts it by his leg and tell him to, you know, make it seem like he's turning it off, but he's not. And, like, this guy is so – he's so needy and so pushy, but, like, you root for him, and you hope – you, you hope that he does well. And the, the entire last third of the film, really the last 30 minutes even, is, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty short film. It's only about 75 minutes long. Um, I, 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 yeah, it's only about 75 minutes long. Um, the last 30 minutes or 20, 25 to 30 minutes of the film is about him editing the very movie. Yeah. And you see his, his very disorganized um, uh, sticky note wall of the parts of the movie that he's going to be organizing. It doesn't make any sense to anyone else but him. Um, and just the screening that the first screening that he organizes that just goes horribly wrong because the digital digital projector breaks down because he didn't go he didn't really make the steps to go and check to make sure that it worked. You know, like mm-hmm. you're supposed to do with these things and. You know, he's not even good at being a roadie because most of the time he's either filming or getting trashed, um, which is like he, one of my favorite, one of my favorite parts. And you brought this up last time is that, you know, he's like, you guys are rock stars. Why aren't you doing more drugs? And yeah. like and like the National is so not that kind of band. They're like this white collar um, friggin, uh, the you know, the, the, like studious, studious indie rock. And like I'm a fan of the National I still haven't heard their, their new album, but I'm a fan of theirs, not as much as you, but I really do, I do like them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, they're, they're like studious indie rock. You know, yeah. they're not, you know, I mean, Matt Berenger, for all intents and purposes, is kind of a rock star, but he's not like a rock star, you know. Whenever I saw them in concert, uh, someone yelled, sell out, up to them. It's the first time of the three I saw them. And he just looks at him in the eye, kind of shrugs. This is the same tour, by the way, that they filmed, uh, not our show. Oh, wow. But but this is that same tour. He, he kind of just shrugs, looks at the guy and goes, I guess we're rock stars. <laughs> and uh, uh, like, he, <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, it's sorry. I just, that was just a digression, but I just thought yeah. it, it was funny. But just where this movie, like, I, I'm not going to lie, I cried intermittently throughout this film. Um, because, uh, just, it's, when they showed, uh, sort of his, his failure to be a roadie, like his ultimate failure, when, I'm not, it's a documentary, I'm not, I don't really feel like, it's not, I don't think it's a big, he gets fired yeah, from, that, from, from being a roadie, and that's when he goes back home and he focuses on, on the film itself, um, and just the hurdles with that, and, uh, it's, it's just so so sad and then there's a scene where 
um, Matt Berenger found out he filmed that Tom filmed himself crying and he just starts laughing at him. But then you see the footage and it's just uh, it's it's heartbreaking and the whole time I was just hoping for this he's it's it's practically he's I was gonna say this character but he's only he almost is kind of a character um and it's so authentic and I just I I love this movie I th- I think it's really great oh yeah it's easy to recommend to others even if they're not necessarily fans of the band yeah because it's it's not even about the band no. And I and I love when he's interviewing the band members, and all he can talk about is himself and his brother. Yep. All he can talk about, and the, and the, uh, one of the guitarists, I think, is one of the guitarists, is just like, it's not, it's not really a big deal. I thought you were interviewing, I thought you were going to talk about the band, though. But all I can talk about is him and his brother, and yep. um, he's just like, yeah, Matt just steamrolls over everyone, doesn't he? Doesn't he? And then. The, the guy's like, well, you know, you guys have a dynamic, and I probably shouldn't really talk about it. No, 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 go on, go on. He just steamrolls <laughs> over you, doesn't he? Yeah, he just has his has his has his way about him. And then, you know, they also they paint Matt Berenger as someone that's kind of hard to work with too. You know, yeah. I think you mentioned this last time as well. But you know, they don't make him they don't make him into a saint that just has this annoying brother. You know, they make him as a dude that has his fair share of issues as well. Yeah, he's like, um, some of the scenes actually didn't have as much to do with the relationship, except it does, um, was sort of after they had a really shitty show in L.A., and, you know, Werner Herzog was there. Oh, yeah, yeah, Werner Herzog. (laughs) And, um, like, so, like, it was just, and then they suck. They had a bad show, and afterwards, Matt Berenger is just, like, because when you go on stage, you're giving up part of yourself. I think they mentioned this a little bit in the film. And he just cannot get over the fact how bad they were. He like he just needs to vent. And Tom is in kind of gets in the way of that. And how that yeah, how it's yeah, dealt with try, the movie tries so to well. film tries to tries to film it. I know. Tries, tries to get into everyone's face with the camera. It gets into the into the faces of the people that are doing their jobs as crew members and just getting getting really into their face with their his fucking camera. And you, they're visibly annoyed with him. Mm-hmm. Like there's this emotional nakedness to this movie. That I found shocking at points, just with how, yeah, I mean, I have nothing but good things to say about this movie. My favorite scene, I mentioned this last time, is when uh, is at the end when they're playing um, yeah. uh, Terrible Love, and he goes into the audience, and it's just that's their that's their relationship like throughout that tour in a nutshell. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it was a really great way to end the movie, and. Um, you, you know, until the credit scene where he where they play Rob Halford's version of Oh Holy Night. <laughs> that will never not be my favorite. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, oh my god. Okay. Um, because I've been talking too much, I'm gonna let you go ahead and talk about the immigrant, what she saw just last night, right? Yes, I just saw it, and it ha- I, it hasn't left my brain. Um, I watched a bad 80s movie this morning, and I kind of wasn't paying attention because I just kept thinking about The Immigrant, so maybe I didn't give that movie a fair shake, but I do not recommend Places in the Heart. That's how I feel. Um, <laughs> but, right. but, um, but The Immigrant is... Oh, wow. Um, it's James Gray's new movie. Um, I Actually, my first James Gray movie. Uh, he yeah. also done, he's done a bunch of Joaquin Phoenix movies, essentially. 
Um, I haven't seen I haven't seen it, but I've heard the Two Lovers is pretty good. Yeah, and I've heard the, I, I've heard mixed things about We Own the Night. And, I hear that's his best. I hear that was his considered his best movie up until this point. Oh, really? Uh, was, I, I've heard more positive things about Two Lovers, but I might be wrong. Um, uh, he he's done Little Odessa, The Yards, and um, We Own the Night, Two Lovers, and now he's done The Immigrant, which has been. Is there cold. something? Is there something going on in your room? Because I keep hearing a. Well, I'm not hearing it now, but that was. Oh, weird! My air conditioning just kicked on. Which that'd be weird if you picked up. Do you still hear it? Yeah, but only when you're speaking for some reason. I don't know. It's not. It's not. It's not that big of a deal. Okay. Uh, um, The immigrant is um, his newest film, and it's a little. It's been. Warmly, but not ecstatically received outside of a few pockets like The Dissolve or uh, Peter Labuza or Keith Ulick and certain film uh, critics throughout there. Um, I believe. And, and TJ Duane. Yes, and me. Uh, I believe Vishnevetsky reviewed them for the, uh, for the AB Club and gave them. Uh, uh, them. <laughs> gave them film a very high uh, review as well. For the most part, people are tolerant of it, saying it's pretty nice you know, kind of period piece about Ellis Island and about the immigrant experience in the early 20th century. The film stars Marianne Cotillard as Eva, um, a Polish immigrant who who comes over from Poland with her sister. And Eva's sister is quarantined with tuberculosis. And Eva almost gets sent back because of something she supposedly did, which you find out later in the film, on the ship, which makes her low and a whore in the eyes of many of these people, like, we don't need you here in this country, and you're, and the person who's supposed to pick you up, your aunt, hasn't even shown up. Well, Joaquin Phoenix's Bruno uh, Weiss sees her and is enchanted by her, so decides to take her under his wing and buys her way off of the island. And the film, essentially, is her misadventures with Bruno uh, Weiss, who is, for all intents and purposes, a pimp. Um, and it's her, sort of, discovering herself in this new world she doesn't know anything about. And there's many twists and turns. Jeremy Renner plays Bruno's cousin, a magician named Orlando. Uh, it's not his actual name, it's his stage name. But he is the a great foil for Joaquin Phoenix's Bruno character. Now, the reason why I want to use the M-word, which is masterpiece with this movie, but I can't do it after t- less than 24 hours. I just That would be irritating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be a little bit too much. <laughs> but, but it has left an impression. Although I, on, although I did that last year with Upstream Caller. And I'm, well, yeah. but I, And for all I know, in a month, I'll be cooler on this film than I am now. Um, that's always a possibility with any film that you kind of blow your load on. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But this film, I can say without a doubt that I love it. It is my favorite film I've seen this year. Um, And that's for many different reasons. It has a great, subtle, beautiful score that it does a great job of moving forward the motion of the story. The production design and and the CGI backgrounds are very tasteful and beautiful at the same time. So everything I've explained so far makes it sound like a very stately period piece that should be up for millions of Oscars. But one, it will not be up for any Oscars because the Weinstein Company is dropping the ball. And two, the film is much more complex and problematic than that. One of the great aspects of this film that increases its artfulness past just this sort of production design that you get in any um, period piece 
is the cinematography is outstanding. It reminds me of the of the bat flashback scenes in Godfather Part Two. Uh, rest in peace, Gordon Wills, who died uh, last week for as we record this podcast. Um, oh yeah. The use of reflect reflective surfaces and all these like warped mirrors, funhouse mirrors almost, um, and the use of shadows and the use of sepia tone and the use of colors create a very masterful mood for this film that you do not get in a mainstream Hollywood period piece. And they tell the story for you as you go along. The screenplay is great. The direction is so strong and has so much confidence in its two leads. So I mentioned that, you know, Ray Fiennes and Tom Hardy are two of my favorite performances of the year. I'm putting Joaquin Phoenix and Marion Cotillard in that same category. Joaquin is proving himself, film after film, to be one of the best actors under 40. And he is such a good job of being a pathetic villain in this story. He's not the villain you hate and you want retribution. He is has this sort of patheticness. He is a second-generation American which separates him from your typical villain you'd expect in this story. He's also a Jew, which makes him also a minority. So the problems that arise because of his heritage make this film so much more complex and so much more interesting than it could have been. The big criticism against this movie is that it's slow. And I guess for some people it might be too slow. Not enough action. Not like, you know, gunfights or something. But not enough... Um, energy like the film takes its time it's only two hours long and it feels two hours long but i think that the patience that this movie requires is worth it and there are some exciting sequences of the of orlando's first magic show on ellis island when you see him there um his introduction into the movie about 45 minutes in um the relationship between the two cousins is electrifying and the complicated love triangle between the three between cotillard renner and um Phoenix. It's. I just can't. Uh, I can't suggest this movie enough. I'm going to write an essay about it. Um, it'll be my next essay for speakers and screens and the band of theater. You know. And I, you know. I don't know. Like, if you if you live in the for any any of our listeners for the for any of our listeners that live in the Southern California area, you know what the Lemley chain is. Um, I. It's playing at every Lemley except the one closest to me. That's, that's the one that is. The closest one is about thirty, is about forty minutes for me, and I might, I might just drop the ball and just go see it today, or tomorrow. I recommend, I recommend you do, and I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating what you and Danny, uh, whenever we podcast with Danny again, think about it because you guys might be a lot colder on it than I am, or you guys might see some of the same magic, or you'll see different magic, and I would love to to return to this movie in a future podcast. Maybe at the end of June we can do a best of the year so far like we did last year. And yeah. and sort of maybe hit on it then because this will unless I see ten better movies in the next month I'm not this will be on my list <laughs> for sure because I, right. I want to see it I want to see it again um, yeah you know I'm I'm waiting for the for the movie this year that really blows me away I mean I'm kind of hoping it'll be Richard Linklater's Boyhood that's one that I'm looking looking forward to possibly the most mm-hmm. um. Uh, I mean, I, I really do, I really do love uh, Locke and the Great Grand Budapest Hotel and the Raid Two and and uh, uh, yeah, um, m- m- more Under the Skin. Um, yeah, Under the Skin. It's been a, it's been I, a I really, really good year. I, I really love those movies, but you know, I'm spoiled because by this time last year, I already had Upstream Color, 
which I I used the M word for that. Yeah. Maybe maybe too soon, but I still fervently believe that. And you know, the last movie I used the M word for is <laughs> <The> Master. <laughs> yeah, of it's course. It's such a masterful piece. Of Master. <laughs> masterful. Speaking of, Mast- yeah. I'm the master. How people- masterful! It's a masterpiece. Master. You're getting masturbatory with the use of masterpiece. Um, <laughs> sorry, that was really not funny. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I laughed. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, um, yeah, my most anticipated is Inherent Vice, but that's because I am a Paul Thomas Anderson stan. So I will. Yeah. I will just. Yeah, I'm, will, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that too. And blink later. It's it, it. You know what? If we don't get a certified, I saw it in five seconds later. I declared it a masterpiece movie this year. I, I'm. This could still be a really strong year like last year and really the last few years for me. Um, a lot of people were down on 2011, but um, I, yeah, I, I, like I, I was kind of down on 2011. I, I found bundles of films that I re- still return to in the last four years. All right. And, and I just – this year so far has been that even if we haven't had that movie yet. And yeah. this, this – The Immigrant might build into that movie. I think that – the production company has dropped the freaking ball. They, they don't even really? have an official film website telling you what theaters to see this in. Wow. And this is the Weinstein company. Is it because they so know that? It's really the, sad. Is it because they know the film's not an easy one with an easy ending? The last shot in this movie blew my mind. It is the most amazing wow. shot I have seen. It tells you the entire story of the film in three seconds. And it's all you need to take away from it in a way. It's... This is filmmaking. This is cinema. This is this is why I love movies, and I I'm pissed off that this movie is not is going to be ignored because it's under it's going to be underseen. It's only made forty four thousand dollars, which is better than a lot of micro budget movies. But for a movie with Marion Cotillard, Jeremy Renner, and Joaquin Phoenix, you think they could at least pull a million? Okay, hopefully. Yeah, we'll see. Alrighty. Well, um, I guess all we have left is I, I saw two movies that you didn't. I'll get Chef out of the way because I'm less enthusiastic about it even since I've seen it. Chef is the new John Favreau film, uh, significantly different than his last few movies, which were Iron Man's one and two. And, uh, you know, Iron Man, I think, is still probably the best Marvel Marvel movie, um, even considering the Avengers and all that. It's oh, wow. it's the one that, that is still hold, held, up the, held up the most, That's I believe. Um, uh, Iron Man 2, eh, I don't hate it the way some people do, but... It, oh my god, it's an abortion. I fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, Cowboys and Aliens, which I almost hated. It's it just just a waste of time. Um, I, I this, even though it's significantly uh, the chef, which is about a chef who... Um, uh, it's significantly problematic, and the more I get away from it, the more I don't like it. But it's still probably the best movie he's done since Iron Man, <laughs> for whatever it's worth. Um, it's about a chef who takes his work just about as seriously as Tom Hardy takes his construction work in, in Locke. Um, and, you, you know, it constitutes just as much of his life as Locke does. Like, his, his apartment is super tiny, and it's basically a kitchen with a, <laughs> with a bed next to it. Like, that's how seriously, like, cooking is his life. It it's, redefines studio apartment. 
Yeah, basically. Um, and he's a chef in Los Angeles, and he's fed up with his with his job because his mean evil boss Dustin Hoffman makes him cook by his menu. Basically, um, and he yeah. and he keeps saying, "Is hey, it's my fucking kitchen. I can do whatever I want." Like, I don't know some of the stuff he says to his boss. Like, anyone else would get fired instantly, but I guess he's a great chef or something. Uh, I don't know. Um, and then after after joining Twitter and discovering Twitter for the first time, which like he's he's in his forties, like you should at least know what Twitter is. You should at least know that when you at reply to someone, it's public. Um, uh, and he gets into a beef with, uh, a, f- a food critic that used to be on one of his major supporters back when he was starting out, but has now gone against him because he finds his food boring or something just because it's cooking by Dustin Hoffman's menu or just something. I don't really know. And like this, this movie doesn't really understand Twitter <laughs> because, um, it has, it has this conceit that. The restaurant reviews spread faster than um, uh, celebrity gossip. Like it, it, it's it's like in the same category as celebrity gossip, and I just don't I I don't buy that. <laughs> hey hey Robbie, did you hear? Because we tweeted about this podcast, we're now the number one most listened to podcast above the Nerdist. And so like <laughs> that's kind of how that's kind of how it is because like later in the film he quits his job and he goes to Miami to kind of figure out his life with his with his ex-wife who uh, is played by Sofia Vergara. By the way, a movie starred by John Favreau and directed by directed and written by John Favreau where his ex-wife is Sofia Vergara and he is now sleeping with Scarlett Johansson. Uh, this... oh, wait, wait, ScarJo's in this movie? Yes. Wait, and yeah. Dustin Hoffman and Robert Downey Jr.? Holy crap, that's a stacked cast. <laughs> yeah, um, Dustin Hoffman has a couple of good scenes where he kind of we kind of choose um uh, john favreau out and tells him what to do or whatever but he doesn't get a whole lot to do scarlett johansson gets even less to do really he's barely even barely even a character um <clears throat> robert Downey jr has one nice scene but that's the only scene he is in the movie he has in the movie um but the thing is there's one great scene where he chews out uh, john favreau chews out this film that the, this food critic um just just screams at him in front of everyone in his restaurant. Um, it sounds cringeworthy on paper. It works for me in the movie, but the thing is, like, it shouldn't work because it's the, the, kind of one of those contrived movie scenes that wouldn't ever happen in real life. And that the whole thing, like, it's basically him throwing a tantrum over a Twitter beef. <laughs> it's this. It's kind of ridiculous, and be, because. Uh, he kept sending tweets back to him and forward to him and throughout all this he does not understand those tweets are public like really and then the when he goes out to Miami with his ex-wife who's you know Sofia Vergara he has gets the idea to get a food truck um and he's with his son and his son basically tweets about it, and instantly there are lines across the blog for his fucking Cuban food truck. And, uh, God, look, in most major cities, like, the food truck phenomenon is really a phenomenon. And in most cities, including especially Southern California, like, there's a lot of competition. Like, a bunch of people have food trucks nowadays. It's also a great episode of Bob's Burgers. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. But just, like, he's instantly a success. And, like, this is one of those movies where things just happen for the character. Like, every everywhere you look, just things just happen for him that he doesn't really have to work for. And that, that includes the last scene of the movie, which... It's kind of baffling because, like, wait, wait, what? This this is happening? Like, there's no build-up to this at all. Like, what? Like, it was one of those things. And it's another, like, it's, an, it's another one of those things where just great, amazing things happen for this character that is not really warranted. Um, but, he, like, even given that, like, <laughs> given this, the gigantic misgivings I have with this movie, that is should probably lead to a bad score like it is really funny and the laughs are definitely there and uh you know it is a fun time to watch um you, you know it doesn't really mean anything by the end of the day but it is it is a fun movie to watch and what this movie does get right is the shots of the food which are just as important as the shots of the cars in the fast and furious movies like they are the money shots of this movie and uh, you know, the the food looks delicious, and I went to a sandwich place after that because I got hungry. Um, not a Cuban sandwich place, which is the main sam- thing that he makes in this movie, but Oh, still. Cubans are great, though. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Chef is fine. Like, you know, uh, when it's streaming, you, you know, it's worth uh, worth a watch. Um, you don't need to go out but and see my- the theater. The Kansas City Star, uh, obviously the local paper where I live, yeah. at least the, of the city I live near, um, gave a higher grade to um, Chef than The Immigrant, so uh, I, guess chef's, I, I guess Chef's a better movie. <laughs> and Yeah, and also I think it has a higher Rotten Tomatoes rating than The, than the Immigrant, too. Last time I checked, The Immigrant had 86%, and Chef, surprises me. And chef currently has... 87. Okay, it, it was at 90. It was in the 90s for a while, but now it's now it's 87. percent Because look, like I'm positive. On, I'm more positive on this movie than I am negative. Believe it or not, even though I just ranted about what's wrong with this movie, because it is like it is like a feel good movie that makes me feel good, you know. But I do think people are overhyping it, you know, because it's not it's not that great, you know. It it is a rental kind of movie, you know. Like it, it is something that that's fun to watch on, on the after, in the afternoon when you're home from work and you don't have anything to do and you just you know crack open like a beer or something and just watch it. Like it's fun. Yeah. But it's not a theater experience by any means. But. But I mean, like there is something to be said about a social movie, a movie you can yeah. put on here with your family. Like, like yeah, I don't, I don't, is, yeah. Like I don't love. Um, like, I obviously didn't love Dallas Buyers Club, and I wouldn't say that, like, David O. Russell's movies are my favorite, but those are movies, and, or Argo even, but those are movies that are like, hey, you guys want to watch a movie? And that's what we watch, because there's no way in hell I'm going to get my family to watch The Seventh Seal. Ah! You know? you, but, but you know what I'm, you know what I'm no matter, saying? No like, matter how many times the Swedish chef wants to make you watch The <laughs> Seventh Seal. Exactly. <laughs> but, like, but I mean, or, or like, or a movie I like a lot. That was a Muppets also, joke, by the way. None of you it get was it. a great Muppets joke. Uh, or like, you know, a movie that's actually really, really, really good. That's a good family movie is Nebraska, obviously. That was yeah. the obvious. But, <coughs> I, took my but, mom, I, mean, I took my mom to see that, and she loved it. But these middle-esque movies of quality-wise, they're not bad, but they're not 
great are good yeah. movies for those family get-togethers. Obviously. Yeah, but like I had a good time with the like, I had a good time with this movie. You know, as much as much as I might be, you know, pooping on it. I, I really did. I really did have a good time with it. Um, <clears throat> what I had a better time with, and I've actually moved up on it since uh, I've watched it because I'm it's just been stuck, just burned into my mind. Is uh, Ty West's new film, The Immigrant. Now, Ty West has had a really interesting trajectory. Wait, wait. Did, did you say the immigrant? Because oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm looking at, at Showtimes for this Pasadena theater that I'm thinking of driving to. And I'm looking at the immigrant Showtimes. No, the new Ty West film, The Sacrament. That's the name of the film. Um, which is the first horror movie I've loved in 2014. Um the first, the first one I think is legitimately great. Um, Ty West has had an interesting trajectory because uh, he's made two features. Uh, he's acted in some other other films, but he's, uh, I think he's well, he, he he's might have made more features. I don't really, I'm not entirely certain. He's made two features that I have seen. The first of which being House of the Devil, which I love. It's legitimately one of my favorite horror movies of the last ten years. And part of that, it, it has, it looks just the way the movie looks. Like it could have come out of this, come out of the '80s. Like it, it li- literally, like the movie just gets that look so perfectly. Um, just the cinematography and just the fa- the colors and the fading. Just it, it, it look. If you didn't know, if you don't know who who Greta Gerwig is, and if you if you if you have it, if you didn't know that it came out in 20, 2010 or whatever or two thousand and nine or whatever it was, if you didn't know any of that. And you just saw it blindly, it would be an '80s movie for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's a great, great haunted house movie with a satanic twist to it. That it's a, it's really one of my favorite kind of, um, one of my favorite kind of structures for a horror movie because it's such a slow burn and it, it just, it just really like it just slowly but surely just increases the tension and tightens its grip and I, I love movies like that um then his, the, his next movie the innkeepers i was a little bit less hot on i might want to see it again because it's a little bit lighter it's a little bit more of a fun haunted house movie and i was, might have might have been comparing it a little bit too closely to the house of the devil um but yeah it, 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 it is still worth a watch if you're a horror fan this film however i do like more than the than the innkeepers and it's a Really interesting change because both of these films have been decidedly retro and haunted house. He decides to go in a completely different direction and work with maybe the most contemporary horror format that there is, and that's the found footage format, which I don't really have any love for. I haven't, <clears throat> I haven't loved a found footage movie, especially not a found footage horror movie since about uh, since Record. Um, what came first, Record or Cloverfield? I love that. I like that movie too. But Record is a really great found footage horror movie that was before a lot of the found footage think craze. Is before the found footage craze that happened after Cloverfield and after um, the Paranormal Activity movies, which I don't even like those. Like I've seen two of them. I don't like either of them. Horror nerd talk right now. The Sacrament. Um, the the conceit that allows it to be. Uh, found footage film is that it's taking 
the format of a Vice documentary, um, which you know if you go on YouTube and search for Vice, they have a, a bunch of really interesting documentary style films. Um, <clears throat> this specific one is about uh, this guy played by an actor named uh, fuck I gotta search it. There's a lot of crossbreeding between all these actors and their directorial films, by the way, because Ty West and um, you know if, if any of y'all listening saw Your Next last year, which was a pretty good slasher movie. It was directed by a guy named Adam Wing- Wingard, and it had Joe Swanberg, Amy Simetz, A.J. Bowen, and Ty West in it. And three of those actors, other than Ty West, obviously, are in this movie. Um, and uh, <clears throat> it centers around uh, – well, it starts with uh, uh, a guy named Patrick who's played by an actor named Kentucker Oddly, who, another fun fact, was in, in one of Amy Simetz's directorial films. <clears throat> See, I'm starting to lose my voice. I'm talking too much. Um, uh, his sister, who who's played by Amy Simetz, who was who was uh, uh, who was a drug addict and left her drug re- rehabilitation program and relocated to a country that is not named, but judging by the climate and by some of the actors, it looked like it could be it looks like it could be somewhere in Africa. Um, she joined this commune known as Eden Eden Parish, and invited and, and want, always wanted him to go over there with her, and <clears throat> basically invited Vice, two people that two filmmakers that work for Vice, played by Joe Swanberg and AJ Bowen, um, <clears throat> invited them to go um, to this place to sort of they're, they're apprehensive about people filming it. <clears throat> um, but what they find there, they find that it's well. Look, they find that it looks relatively peaceful. Um, everyone seems happy, but of course, nothing is quite as it seems. Um, and essentially, what you have here is a found footage version of Jonestown, the Jonestown massacre. Like that's basically what it is. Like, <clears throat> and Jonestown is something that I've had a mild obsession with since. Um, since I first uh, sort of did mild research on it in high, in uh, college for a paper I was writing on it, um, and it's basically a cult. Like, like where they are is basically a cult. Although you don't realize this until you you, you get a sense that this could happen. But you know, this also this movie also does a slow burn and just gets more and more. You find out more and more of the twisted stuff behind everything, and it just gets more and more fucked up. And if you know how the Jonestown Massacre ended, you kind of know where this movie is going. But the thing that surprised me about this film is that there are, you know, in most found footage movies, there's some kind of bullshit like supernatural or just uh, something. No supernatural stuff in this movie. It's all very straightforward. And maybe the best thing about this movie is the guy that plays the lead, the head of this cult, um, who's known as Father, played by an actor named Gene Jones. You don't know his name, but you do know a specific scene he was in in No Country for Old Men. The coin toss scene, he's on the other side of the counter. Oh. Yeah. And he was in a few episodes of Boardwalk Empire, and um, he hasn't done a whole lot, but 
He is terrific in this movie because he has that charisma that would lead people to him, but also, <clears throat> but also, you know, is also very twist. You know, you you get the sense about you get the sense of how twisted he is. Um, and this film, I think, really gets hive mind mentality and you know the kind of group think that goes on with situations like this and the fact that it's all happened before not only in Jonestown but in you know other situations because this film does draw from other cult like situations as well um other you know culty culty religious stuff um and this film feels you know it, it does go the tiniest bit batshit at the end, and it, it, it gets goes to some really really disturbing areas, but it feels more authentic than that. Um, although obviously, you know, you never get the sense that this ever actually happened, that this specific event ever happened, because for one thing, they do have opening credits explaining, showing who the actors are, like the names, like starring Joe Swanberg, starring this, starring that. Which kind of ruins the whole um, found footage gimmick, but the thing is, like, it shows that the director knows the kind of movie that he's making, and I think he employs found footage in a really interesting way. Um, and so, and and I don't know, it, it was not nearly as campy as I thought it was going to be, but it ended up being better for it, and. Um, I don't, I don't just the way this movie was executed. It, I just thought it was really, I thought it was really powerful and one of my favorite horror film, my, my favorite horror film of the year so far, easily, and definitely one of my favorite movies of the year so far. For some reason, I thought that the guy behind the counter was Andy Griffith. Oh really? <laughs> I have no idea why I thought that. Do you ever just like think something and then think it's fact because for some reason you just like internalize it as a fact? Yeah. <laughs> That's just, I don't know why I thought that. Um, yeah, I feel like I need to watch more Ty West, because like, he has a really good interview on the How Sue Criterion Blu-ray about his relationship to that movie, and I thought he sounded like a really smart guy, and figured he probably, even though I'm not the biggest horror fan or aficionado in the world, that I would find something to appreciate, because he just sounds like, a, I mean, he just... I, th- I think you would, because I think, well, I, I, don't, know, I don't know entirely exactly if you'll love it as much as I do, but I think it's still very much a horror movie. Mm-hmm. But it's, Which is good. A horror movie should be a horror movie. Yeah. Like, it shouldn't be some like art house like. But horror like movie. everything feels that like you understand why, and and a lot of that is because of this guy Gene Jones who plays the father. A lot of that is him. Like he's really the glue of this movie, and he he works and what he, and you understand why people follow him kind of blindly and. You understand why people would, you know, and, and it doesn't portray cults at first, at least, as this kind of zombie, um, you know, they don't portray these members as a bunch of zombies. It's ba- <clears throat> it's still just, it, it's like people, you know, you know, there are a bunch of people playing basketball there, and there's a medical center, and you, you kind of see normal people just living in, like, almost a commune. But then it gets more fucked up as it goes along. But that all feels natural. Like it doesn't feel like anything is hammered in. At least for me, anyway. I'm sure you know maybe other people would other people would disagree. But I, I just really love this movie. 
I I took it off because it, it got sort of a cold reception. I took it off my watch list, but because of your kind of rave right here, I just re-added it to my yeah. letterbox watch list. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure if it's. I don't think it's perfect, and I might like. I I might like house. Still might like House of the Devil a little bit more because it just makes me so happy because it pushes all of my horror buttons. Um, but for a found footage movie, I mean, this is this really exceeded my expectations, and it, it was different than I expected because, like I said, I expected some kind of bullshit like you know campy uh, like supernatural stuff to get in the way or I expected it to be bloodier or whatever there's only there's only one scene of moderate gore in this movie um even if i dislike it i'm gonna try out the other film that you mentioned because yeah um because i because even if Gasai west even if this one is kind of a colder reception of, of a film he's had He's obviously has a talent because he has lots yeah. of champions from lots of different avenues of criticism. So I, I want to check more of his work. I want to check any of his work out other than that interview. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and I saw him do an interview for this film. It's really interesting. Um, you want to do DVD picks? I don't know if you prepared one, but I, I, um, I would. Yes, I would like to do a DVD pick. And my DVD, I, pick, my DVD pick is the House of the Devil. I'm just gonna say it. Nice. Okay, there I you prepared go. something else, but House of the Devil it makes me it makes me happy. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna do a DVD pick and then pimp my not not, not a movie but uh, my essay. My, yes, pimp the website because I, I wrote an essay at some point after the last one was recorded at the last podcast. So um, do you do you want to have any background talk about just or or did your review of the sacrament speak for Ty West alone? Um, wait. Uh, um, what do you mean? House of the De- House of the Devil. Oh, House of the Devil. Um. Well, it's been uh, it's been a little few years since I've seen it. I need to watch it again desperately. Um, but it's kind of a haunted house movie, but with a satanic sort of edge to it. And it's a very slow burning movie, like I said. But you know, in that slow burn, you can see all the things that he's setting up. Um, and it just the tension gets tighter and tighter, and it makes you wait. And this movie makes you wait too for the goods, kind of. But when they deliver, it's wholly satisfying and um, more satisfying than Godzilla because you actually care about the people. Yeah. Um, it sounds good. I, I need to check it out. My, I'm going to cheat and suggest two Blu-ray, uh, Criterion Blu-rays, because one's Go a ahead. new release and one's an old one that I saw a while ago that I recently purchased and bought. The new one is, ladies and gentlemen, go out and get Persona on Blu-ray. It yeah. is one of the great films and the criterion has the Brit has the brand new, uh, live and Ingmar documentary on it. It has all these great, um, it has a great essay, um, film essay about the first seven minutes of that, of, of, of the weird editing, just how forward thinking that film was. Go get the new criterion persona. Um, all right. uh, for Ingmar, Ingmar my second one is Jonathan Demme's 1984. I believe. Oh yeah, I know where you're going. I know where you're going. Something wild. Oh, went, oh shit. <laughs> I know. Well, okay. I, I, might I thought you were going. I thought you were going to say stop making sense. Which I'm going to see on the big screen next month, which I might talk oh, about. Oh, very uh, jealous. It, I love that movie. I I have no doubt it's coming to LA as well because it's sort of a thing they're doing for its 30th really? anniversary. I'll, I'll try to see. Actually, wait. I I have to be wrong on the year because um because you're right. It was 30 years ago. When, uh, but yeah, stop making sense. Go see the great Talking Heads uh, concert film. Um, it's terrific. Uh, yes, it is absolutely 
terrific. I am pimping currently because I have the Blu-ray and I watched it recently. And it was a film that kind of just blew my hair back in a way I was not expecting. Something Wild starring Jeff Daniels and uh, Melanie Griffith. And the debut performance from Ray Liotta came out in 1986. Um, This movie is a weird little comedy that I just absolutely adore. Um, It's a film that constantly reinvents itself uh, as it goes on. It starts off as like a sort of Bonnie and Clyde thing. Then it kind of goes into like a romance. Then it turns into a slasher film by the end of it. It has all these strange movements that are expertly edited together and paced and you get to know and fall in love with this Jeff Daniels and this Melanie Griffith character and you as you find out more and more about them and who they are the twists and turns everything in this film is earned it's hilarious it gets intense at times and you get to see the sort of potential of just just the great filmmaking that Jonathan Demme had and a reason why he's one of the biggest influences for modern day auteurs like Paul Thomas Anderson I mean, the, the Demi film everyone has seen is Silence of the Lambs, which is great in its own right. But there's something yeah. different about Something Wild that I almost appreciate more in its ability to sort of balance tones and plot twist and character in a way that I haven't seen in a romantic comedy elsewhere. I think this movie is special, and I think it's kind of forgotten, so I recommend it. The only other Jonathan Demi movie I've seen besides those two is Stop Making Sense in Silence of the Lambs. It is Rachel getting married, and I kind of hate it. So, I, I'm going to watch it one day, but I I'm not as high on it as I was. I will. And, uh, the, whole, the whole thing is basically Anne Hathaway going, "I'm acting." Oh, so I'm yeah. acting. I I don't doubt I'm not going to be as high on it, and I don't think <laughs> I don't think Demi is at a high point in his career right now as he was in the 80s and early 90s. Melvin and Howard is pretty great too, in a weird movie that doesn't oh, kind of Soderbergh esque. <laughs> Oh, yeah, isn't, um, isn't Jonathan Demme's first movie, like, le, one of those women in prison movies? It might be. I don't know. Um, I've only seen the, the I've only seen the three that I just mentioned, uh, four that I just mentioned. Um, it might be. Demi no, is a, his first movie is Caged Heat. His, one of those exploitation, the subgenre of exploitation films known as women in prison films, which is exactly what it sounds. It's women in prison. It sounds amazing. His second movie is Crazy Mama. <laughs> is it also a women in prison movie? Uh, no, it stars Cloris Leachman. But I just love that name. <laughs> no, I, I need to see his 70s work because Melvin and Howard about uh, Howard Hughes just leaving. It's a real life story about how he left this money to this guy who picked him up on the street. Um, uh, Stop Making Sense, Something Wild, and Sansa Lambs are great. I've never seen Philadelphia, though. I'm not excited to see it. I haven't I've, seen it either. Never seen the new, his Manchurian Candidate remake. Um, yeah, but the 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 movies that I have seen are all are all legitimately really good to great. So I think mm-hmm. he's one of those filmmakers who may have lost his mojo along the way, but I can't really say because I haven't seen any of his more, more recent work. All right. Before we go, I need to pimp an essay that I wrote, a uh, comparative essay looking at Akira Kurosawa's. Rashomon and Steven Spielberg's Minority Report, and not how immediately a comparison I would make, but <laughs> it's interesting. I got we watched Minority Report before yeah. I watched it because I only saw it when I was a kid, so I barely didn't barely got any of it basically. Surprisingly great. It might be Spielberg's best movie since the turn of the century, uh, other than maybe Lincoln or yeah. Catch Me If You Can, which are both really good movies. Um, yeah. 
Uh, Minority Report is campy, awesome, smart, and has everything you kind of want in a Spielberg movie. And both, uh, the last thing I'll say is both movies are sort of looking at truth and the inability oh, yeah. to ever fully see truth. And there's actually great use, uh, both have such forward-thinking uses of lens flare. Um, I think Minority Report is the reason why J.J. Abrams is obsessed with it. And also Rashomon invented point, uh, or at least popularized pointing the camera at the sun um, as a filming technique. And I just thought that was a weird comparison. But I, uh, first off, see those movies. Uh, Rashomon's canonical and um, Minority Report, I think is great and underrated, but, al- but also read my essay that talks about that. Alrighty, sounds great, yeah! Follow us on Twitter. Like us. Oh, yes. Uh, follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Letterboxd. Follow us on Tumblr with speakersscreens.tumblr.com. Also, find us on iTunes. Rate, review, and as Robbie said, you better give us five-star reviews or we will hunt you down. And probably pro- probably indoctrinate you into our sacrament-style cult. Yep. And, and make you constantly listen to Burning Down the House on YouTube. Burning Down the House. Alrighty. Alright, well, thank you thank you for listening and thank you for loving and thank you for watching. Well, I think it just came up with a with a pretty good sign off just there. There we go. We All did right. it. It just took us like ten episodes. Alright. Uh, bye bye. Bye everyone. Okay, that went pretty well.